to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming back the great Dr. William Marshner. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen indeed. Thank you. I want to begin tonight with one of these funny words that only Catholics ever use. It purports to be English, but it isn't really. It's the word magisterium. Even magister is not really an English word. Magisterium is a fancy Latin word that means something like teaching office or teaching authority. In theology, we usually have occasion to teach, to talk about the teaching office or authority within the church. Now, uh, teaching can be taken in a very broad sense in which here before you tonight, I am not an authentic teacher. No. Why is that? Because in order to count as an authentic teacher, you have to have students who are obliged to receive your instruction. Okay? You are here entirely by choice. The same is true usually in any adult ed program. And so what goes on there under the name of teaching is eh, inauthentic. That's all right. It can be entertaining, but inauthentic as far as teaching is concerned. Have I ever been an authentic teacher? Yes. Time was when students were obliged to be before me at the set hour and to receive what I had to say. This was the power of the grade book. Okay. Anybody who has some power like that of the grade book counts as an authentic teacher. Okay. Now then. Even that is authentic only in a broad sense. Okay? When we talk about the authentic teaching in the church, we mean authentic in a narrower and more precise sense. That's where the student has not only the right to receive the instruction, an obligation to sort of take it, but also an obligation to assent to it. Now this I have never had. All of my students have been at liberty to tell me I was full of it, uh, or that they disagreed, or whatever. Um, an authentic teacher in the strict sense carries with him the obligation on the part of the student to assent to what he or she has to say. 
Now then, each teaching act is specified, put into its kind, by the object or content taught. And what's taught is something like a sentence or a proposition. Obviously, if the students have to assent to it, it has to be a proposition. And assent not just outwardly, but inwardly. Okay? Lots of students thought, when they took my classes, that they had to assent outwardly. That was not true. I never flunked anybody for disagreeing with me outwardly. They had to be able to give back on the test whatever I insisted they learn, but they didn't have to agree with a word of it. Inwardly is another story. Only the church's magisterium has the right to demand from you an assent which is inward, an interior assent, an assent of the mind. And why does the church have that kind of teaching authority? Answer, because all the teaching that the church does is just a part of and a continuation of the mission wherewith the Lord Jesus Christ came to the earth to speak the word of God the Father to those of us who needed to hear him, which includes all of us. Yes? So the kind of authority that the church is using is divine authority. Not because she has it, but because God has it. And God has instituted his church to be a continuator of the mission he gave to Jesus Christ. All right. Now, I said that each teaching act is specified by the object taught, the topic taught. And when we get to topics taught, it's time to divide things up into the reliability and non-reliability of the object taught. Vis-a-vis the reliability of what is taught, we divide magisterium into the fallible and the infallible. You all know what fallible means. Even if the teacher has some kind of right to demand your assent, outward or inward, the teacher can still be wrong, can just get the matter wrong. We all know this is true, because within our living memory there was a thing called the Soviet Union, and in the schools of Marxist-Leninist dialectic, students had to learn the truth about where history was going, and you had to assent internally, otherwise Stalin's secret police would find you out. (laughs) That was fallible authentic, well, sort of authentic, (laughs) magisterium. Well, it was a fallible counterfeit of authentic magisterium. All right, is that better? there, There is fallible magisterium that's not a counterfeit. It's wherever human beings are doing the teaching without any 
special assistance. Okay? Every one of us is able to get things wrong. It wasn't until recently that I discovered that about myself. <laughs> yeah, don't I wish. Now, we're all able to get things wrong and be convinced of what we say, even though it is wrong. So, the question of how reliable the object taught is blends into the question of how or if the teaching is assisted. If it's unassisted, human activity, it is fallible. Yes? And that, of course, is the usual situation in synods and even in local councils and provincial councils and national councils, not to mention national Episcopal conferences. But those things are not even activities of magisterium. I'll get to that. There are many local authorities in the church that exercise authentic teaching, authentic magisterium, but it's fallible. And that means that we are, while obliged to give it some, kind, some level of assent, some level of recognition that this is infallibly taught, so it's probably right, something like that, we do not have to believe it with divine or Catholic faith. Okay? I'll get to that difference after a while. Ascent of the will and mind, ascent of the heart versus ascent that's like the ascent of the faith. Talk about that another time. I need to contrast fallible, authentic teaching now with infallible, authentic teaching. And the, infa the infallible, as I said, is always with assistance. In our case, divine assistance. But how God is giving this assistance differs in at least three important cases. Um... infallibility can be a matter of how things are supposed to be, a matter of right, so to speak. De jure. But it doesn't have to be internal to the human being receiving it. Okay? Let's put it this way. Suppose Take teaching out of your mind for a minute. Let's just stick to making your way through the daily problems of your life. Suppose you're stuck on what to do. And the decision is costing you time and worry and so on. And so you invoke the blessing of God to help you make the right decision. And let's suppose that in response to this prayer, instead of getting told to shut up and figure it out yourself, we get a response from God that results in, is in effect like an illumination from the Holy Spirit. Thanks to that interior illumination, you were able to make an assisted decision. Okay? But the assistance was not coming from anything inside you. 
It's not that you are now intrinsically able to make right decisions. The assistance was coming from the outside. That's called extrinsic. Yes? And that is how it is with the church's magisterium. Does God ever give internal assistance to avoid all error? Yes, he does. But that process is not called magisterium, it's called inspiration. Okay? When God inspires a writer of sacred scripture, there is a help from God that comes as a kind of accidental, transitory illumination of the writer's mind, whereby that writer is able to see things as God wills them to be seen and express them as he wills them to be expressed. The result of that situation is that the human writer of a Bible book, for example, the human writer becomes, if you will, an instrument of God. God is the principal speaker, the principal teacher, but the writer holds the pen. The writer gets to shape some of the wording, but the main author is God. The human being is an instrument of God in getting this book written. Is inspiration in the sense believed in by the church to be found in anything except sacred scripture? Answer, no. No. There are lots of inspiring books, books that are inspired in an artistic sense, no doubt. But when it comes to a kind of inspiration that precludes error in the conveyance of the divine mind, there is only the inspiration of sacred scripture. Okay? Is the Pope inspired? when he makes an ex-cathedra judgment and defines a dogma. No, he is not. Neither is an ecumenical council. Neither is the media. <laughs> the Pope is not inspired when he teaches ex-cathedra, as we say. He is assisted from without, with an external help that prevents him from making a serious mistake. Okay? Now then, serious mistake is a weasel expression. You recognize that. That was a weasel word, right? <sighs> serious mistake. If we're talking about God revealing a truth, okay, and the Pope has to define that God has revealed precisely this truth, okay, then any error is serious. I mean, you know, any, any error that would count as changing the point taught would be serious. I don't know if, I don't know if we've ever had the problem of a Pope whose grammar was so bad that, uh, well, never mind. <laughs> they don't usually make up these defined sentences out of their own linguistic ability. They have lots of experts to help with that. But um, the, um, 
if the point being taught is of the practical order or the pastoral order, ah, then it's not a question of what's exactly true, so much as it is a question of what is advisable. Okay? Anything that's called pastoral, this is a very good rule. If it's called pastoral, don't look for truth. Somebody's going to quote me on that, and I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> but pastoral matters are not about what's true or false, but about what it is suitable to do, not suitable to do, what's a good idea for reform, what's a lousy idea, all right? And in connection with all such practical and pastoral matters, even the gift of infallibility doesn't preserve the Pope from anything except an error so serious it would sink the church. Okay? Pastoral advice, pastoral doctrine, if there is such a thing, taught by the Holy See, all we can know about it, theologically speaking, is that it's consistent with the survival of the church. The Pope is not going to tell us to do something that wrecks the church altogether. Neither is an ecumenical council. Even Vatican II didn't wreck the church. Quite. I mean, we're still here. That's a terrible thing to say, and again, I'm going to be in trouble. <laughs> All right, now I've talked a little bit about the difference between inspiration and infallible magisterium. Inspiration is as a matter of internal help from God to the human agent. Magisterium is external help from God to the human agent. <sighs> Revelation doesn't involve any help to the human agent, okay? because it's a divine action. Revelation is God speaking. Inspiration is a matter of man understanding and writing with God's help. Infallible magisterium is a matter of man as a proper cause repeating and confirming what God has said. Another little thing, sometimes um, the term revisable is used. And we say that a doctrine infallibly taught is irrevisable, but it doesn't mean exactly the same as infallible means. A point can be irrevisable simply because there's nobody with the authority to revise it. What the Supreme Court has to say to us in matters of American constitutional law is, alas, irrevisable, at least for the foreseeable future. Okay? Yeah, we could get together a constitutional amendment eventually, I suppose, and fix some things, but that's hard. So the cons what, what, the, what a Supreme Court decides or the final lawgiver in a society decides is perhaps irrevisable, at least for the short run. But it certainly isn't infallible. And there's another kind of judgment that's irrevisable for another reason. 
Suppose you've got a serious problem of conscience. Oh my. You just can't make up your mind if something is right or wrong to do. Oh dear. And after all kinds of flailing around about it and thinking about it, and <sighs> finally, there's no more time for flailing around and thinking about it. You're now under the gun. The decision has to be made. So what you get from your conscience is like a last practical judgment. This is it. Do it. Or this is it. Don't do it. That's the judgment you have to follow if you are to be true to your conscience. But it's not infallible. Not at all. Your conscience can give you, as your last practical judgment, baloney. And then you're just stuck. Because if you ignore it, you violate your own integrity. And if you follow it, you perhaps violate a serious moral rule. So you are in a cleft stick, so to speak. You're damned if you, no. You're not damned if you do and damned if you don't. That's another story. But you're wrong if you do and you're wrong if you don't. This is the tragedy of a malformed conscience. We should all pray earnestly that our children are spared that misfortune. Okay? There's nothing worse than a malformed conscience. Because even when you're following it and think you're doing right, if it's malformed, you are very likely doing wrong. And the, uh, uh, what the wrong you do is objectively damaging to others and to the moral order as a whole. Yes? This is why, by the way, the Catholic Church, one of the reasons the Catholic Church was roundly hated in the 19th century. Oh, my goodness. You know, there were riots at the time of Pope Pius IX's death. A mob set out to seize his, his sarcophagus, and um, he was hated. Why was that? Well, mainly because he absolutely refused to grant what every 19th century liberal, liberal swore by, namely, the rights of conscience. He didn't think there was any right of conscience. You do not have a right to follow your conscience, right or wrong. You do not. You may have an obligation to do so internally. And you may follow it and commit a crime. And no properly constituted government is going to say, well, okay, if your conscience says do it, then it's not a crime. No way. So the next time you hear about some alleged rights of conscience, Think carefully. The Catholic Church has never accepted it. We were close at one point. The famous Jesuit theologian John Courtney Murray, who was the major authority behind the um, Vatican II Constitution on Religious Liberty, he had originally wanted to frame religious liberty in terms of the right of conscience. And he was talked out of that by the bishops at Vatican II. Thank Goodness, those bishops knew you can't talk about a right of conscience. Now, I'm done with that subject. Things can be irrevisable without being infallible. And now I want to go to, on to what is tonight's 
I suppose, most important topic. And that is about the subject exercising authentic or infallible magisterium. What is the subject of the church's magisterium? That means who does it? Who is entitled to do this teaching? Who has an office to which this kind of teaching belongs? Who has such an office permanently? Not by delegation, not for six months, but permanently. And the short answer to that was made very clear at Vatican II, but it was already clear at Vatican I. It's the bishops of the church in accord with the Holy, with the Holy Father, whether they're in a council or outside of a council. The worldwide episcopate, there's a special word for that, another Catholic term, the Episcopal College. Okay? This is the only college that doesn't grant BA degrees and MA degrees. <laughs> the Episcopal College means the Episcopal Club. It's the society or association of the bishops of the world, and when they act in union with the Holy See, they are a unity, they are one college, not just, you know, a thousand different voices. They are one collective agent, unified by the Holy See, and as so unified, they are the primary um, enactor of infallible magisterium, or even of authentic magisterium. Every bishop in his own diocese has an area of jurisdiction, namely his diocese. And in that area, he can be an authentic teacher, but that's only for his own people. Your bishop has a right to teach you and get your assent insofar as you are in his diocese, in his congregation. But if you mean a kind of teaching that goes out to the whole world, then the only possibility is uh, a unity made possible by the Holy See. It is debated among theologians whether we should say that the proper subject of magisterium in the church is one or two. Should we say that it is strictly one, namely the Holy Father, and those whom he calls to an ecumenical council share the job with him so that it derives to the whole body of the bishops secondarily? Or should we say the one proper subject of infallible teaching in the church is the worldwide episcopate as united with and under the Pope. If you look at it that way, then it really becomes a matter of words whether you say that infallibility attaches to the whole church speaking under its head or in its head. Without the head, there's no infallibility. Okay. But is the church acting under its head or in its head? 
If it's just in his head, it's the Pope, it's the Pope acting individually. The Holy See, as we all know, can act on its own without bringing the bishops of the world into the act. The Pope doesn't have to call an ecumenical council in order to define a dogma. I will talk more about that next time when we talk about the ability of the Holy See to act alone. Right now, I don't want to get into that, and I don't want to take up the question, well, is there, is there one proper subject of, of available magisterium, or are there two? So there are two, so what? Two's a good number, two. Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's basically neither here nor there. As long as we understand that the whole Episcopal College can act only with the unity it gets from agreement with its head. Yes? And from subordination to that head. Now, I don't want to talk about the Pope acting alone much tonight because I've got too much to say about councils. Okay. A council happens when there are multiple bishops joined together to teach something. Okay. Joined together to teach something in the theoretical order or in the practical order, that doesn't matter. If they're joined together to teach something, and it's multiple bishops, you have the possibility of its being a council. But we have to be careful. Unless all the bishops of the world have been invited to this thing, and a representative sample is there for this thing, you can't talk about an ecumenical council. Okay. If, a, if a council is called, and whoever calls it, the pope, the emperor, whoever calls it, if a council is called and all the bishops of the world are invited, and, you know, a reasonable number actually come, then, prima facie, you're dealing with a worldwide or ecumenical council. What happens if nobody, no bishops come to the council except titular bishops? Is this still a council? No. Sorry. Now here, you know, this is Western canon law. I'll have to appeal to other authorities <laughs> to speak from another point of view. But in, in, in Western uh, understanding, a titular bishop is like an honorary bishop. Okay? You, get to be a t you get to be a real bishop and get to attend an ecumenical council and be there as an agent and do something if and when you're running a diocese. Okay? You are a successor to the apostles in some see. Yes. And to be a successor of the apostle is to be doing what? Not just teaching, but also ruling and sanctifying. It's the residential bishop who does that. Yes. And I don't care if his area is called a diocese or some other name. If it's a residential bishop, he can be invited 
uh, and is op open to, uh, to uh, take part in an ecumenical council as a full-fledged member thereof. Other people may be invited, but they're not full-fledged acting members, so to speak, of the council. Take simple priests. Vatican II was crawling with them. So was Vatican I. So was the Council of Trent. They were not there, however, as bishops with a vote to decide anything. They were there as experts to be heard on various subjects they might be expert in. If you are called to a council because you have some kind of expertise, but you don't have decision-making power or the vote, so to speak, you are called a peritus, P-E-R-I-T-U-S. There's another nice Catholic word, peritus, plural periti. Okay. Those of us who have taught the history of Vatican II have deplored many times the work of the periti at the council. The periti were not Italian pastries. <laughs> they were non-bishops there because they had made theological studies and it was thought they had something to say. Often, that was a mistake too, but never mind. You can also be invited to an ecumenical council if you are an abbot. Suppose you are the head of a monastery. That's a good thing to be. All right. But now suppose your monastery is under the jurisdiction of the general uh, council of your order. Then can you go to the council? Answer, no. But suppose your monastery is apart from some, over, some authority over it, so that your uh, authority over your own monastery, your monks, is similar to that of a bishop. In that case, you can be invited to an ecumenical council. Okay? So residential bishops, abbots with no abbot over them. Oh, there's a wonderful term for that. Abbot nullius. N-U-L-L-I-U-S. That means an abbot with no abbot over him. Okay, abbot nullius. Ah. And unless you are a bishop, well, archbishop, all right, fine. If, unless you are a residential ruler in a diocese or a monastery as abbot thereof, you have no business at an ecumenical council except as a guest, an invited advisor, perhaps. But you're not going to be there to deliberate. You're not going to have a deliberative vote. <sighs> what about councils that are not ecumenical? In the entire history of the church, there have only been 23 ecumenical councils. And that's, that's a lot more than our friends in the East count. But we in the West count 23. I'm sorry, I forgot, Vatican II, 24 ecumenical councils. And uh, they're rare. 
between the Council of Nicaea and the next council, Constantinople I, 100 years went by, 125 years. Basically, they happened about once a century. Between the last council of the Middle Ages and Trent was over 100 years. Between Trent and Vatican I was 350 years. That's because Trent did such a good job. <laughs> you should keep that in mind. Anytime you hear somebody complaining about the Council of Trent, um, uh, give them the raspberry or something. Because Trent was wonderful. Anyway, never mind about that. Suppose um, the council is too small to represent the whole world. Suppose only the bishops of a province have been invited. Then it's called a provincial council. Its decisions are binding only for Catholics living in that province. But what if it only binds a single diocese? Then it's not a council at all. It can be a diocesan synod. In a synod, you don't have to have many bishops, just one. Then it's a diocesan synod. One bishop there to preside, a whole bunch of priests to make advice and decisions and so on. But if you've got multiple bishops, you have at least the possibility of being a council. But it could be just local, provincial, something like that. If it's all the bishops of a given archdiocesan area, then it has to be presided over by the metropolitan archbishop, right? And uh, the other bishops are there to help him make decisions, but uh, he's, he, gets, he gets to provide, preside. Even in ecumenical councils, the Holy Father gets to preside. If not directly, then through emissaries who are called legates. Why legates? Why not delegates? Catholic word. Yeah, special vocabulary. Nothing to be done about it. Um, the Holy See has specific requirements for something to count as a local or provincial council. And this is something I want you to understand. Um, in order to count as a provincial council or, or, you know, regional, something like that, the bishops have to be there to discuss and decide religious matters, not what to think about the signs of the times. That's a matter of secular interpretation. That's, that's trying to, you know, puzzle out history without divine revelation. Big mistake. Big mistake. You can't get a bunch of bishops together and have them talk about the moral necessity of supporting the striking workers at the Hagar Pants Factory and call that a council, even a regional. No. It's not a council unless there are multiple bishops there and they are dealing with, debating, genuinely <coughs> religious issues. Why? Because these are the issues on which the bishops are competent to teach and decide. Nobody made them competent in economics, etc. 
And this is the principle, oh, I'll tell you, one of the happiest days of my life is going back some years now. Ah. We were in, we, we were in, um, we were afflicted by documents coming down from the United States Episcopal Conference. And these were documents about nuclear weapons and documents about world hunger and documents about this, that, and the other thing. And um, we didn't like some of those documents. Well, some of us didn't. Anyway, uh, we were afraid that these documents brought with them some sort of real authority. You get all the bishops of the United States together in one of these conference meetings, doesn't that make a, a, a synod? Uh, that is to say, a regional council, a national council. And the answer is, no, it doesn't. Because they're taking up topics about which they have as bishops no God-given competence to speak. So be careful about, oh, oh, by the way, that wasn't the judgment I reached. I wouldn't presume. This was the judgment given to us by then Cardinal Rossinger. Yes. Some people appealed to the Holy See. Oh, I know what it was. It was, it was in connection with the atomic weapons document that the USCC, United States Catholic Conference, put out. Yes. Uh, the, the teaching was remarkable. Could the United States morally possess nuclear weapons? Yes. Could the United States morally ever use a nuclear weapon? No. <laughs> we could spend tax dollars to keep them up. We could never use them, no matter. Oh. Never mind. We had a couple of bishops in this country, including the one in, uh, down in New Orleans in those days, who said, this is crazy. And he appealed to the Holy See and got a judgment back from Cardinal Ratzinger in those days, head of, of uh, the doctrinal office, saying these kinds of judgments from Episcopal conferences are not acts of the magisterium. Hello? They are perhaps what the local <coughs> bishops so beautifully <coughs> think about it all, but they are not even teaching acts much less fallible teaching acts, or much less infallible ones. So that's how I learned to relax and love the United States Catholic Conference. <laughs> as long as their political baloney was not teaching, I could say, well, nice to hear from you guys. Keep up your spirits, pray for guidance, and maybe next time you'll have something better to say. All right, now I've covered my topic for tonight. When we come back, uh, next week, God willing, knock on wood, uh, I'm into the problems about the exact authority of the papacy and issues of the practical order. What happens? When bishops get together and decide, well, we're not going to solve anything doctrinal. We're here for a pastoral purpose. 
<laughs> what does that do to their authority? Tune in next week. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen, goodbye. writing in online says where does the catechism of the catholic church fix into the magisterium is everything said in it binding answer is not on the same level everything in there is binding on some level i mean it's authentic magisterium but not everything in there is infallible and not everything in there is equally well attested in the church's long-standing ordinary teaching. Okay, not everything. Some phrases here and there, some ideas here and there were frankly new. And uh, the most salient case of that is the case of uh, the, def the new statement from uh, the Catechism about capital punishment, that capital punishment is implicitly, impli uh, intrinsically licit, yes, intrinsically, but in fact it uh, cannot licitly be used unless there's no other way to protect uh, the good of uh, the community from the criminal. Now then, uh, you could take the view that this is an addition. This is a new bell and whistle hung on the general doctrine about capital punishment. If you take it that way, then uh, the addition in the catechism has zero authority. And you as a Catholic are not dissenting from anything in the authentic magisterium by saying, well, no, I disagree. I think uh, capital punishment has much broader licit use than that. I was terrible when I was teaching students. I used to tell them that in my opinion it was the only fitting punishment, never mind. <laughs> Other questions? I would like to just add something to that, and that as, as you're reading your catechism, which I hope you're doing on a regular basis, to have the freedom of mind that the church gives you to be able to say, could this be better stated? And I've found many places in the catechism that are beautifully stated, but other places we say, I wish they had, had kind of said it this way, not I wish, but I think they could have phrased this better, which invites you into a, a deeper discussion and uh, analysis of what the church teaches that we are full participants as, of the body of Christ in that uh, reality uh, so it, it's not as you're reading a book that uh, and and the, the page states the thing and we uh, we assent to it but we enter into the discussion and examine the text and uh, and grow from it it's a very beautiful document the catechism is and there's certain places in which you say well I'd like to understand that more deeply and then being able to get other books. I encourage you very much in that, in that pursuit. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, 
please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.